Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Sometimes I wonder what happened to Jonah as he sat outside the city of Nineveh. Did he begin to see those people the way our Lord saw them? Did God use them to change his heart the way he used Jonah to change theirs? When I was younger, I remember hearing stories about my uncle, the missionary. There was something about his life, the way he sacrificially served others, that resonated with me. Years later, while attending Bible school, I had the opportunity to follow in his footsteps and embark upon an eight-month missions trip spanning 15 countries. Soon, I would be leaving the comforts of Calgary to journey to my own Nineveh of sorts. So off I went. One of the first things I learned is that mission work is difficult. While in Asia of all places, I had to deal with prejudice because of my Filipino heritage. It was difficult, but God was always there to strengthen and comfort me. I later traveled to Spain, and the roommate I was supposed to live with had to immediately return home before I was even settled in. I was now all alone in a foreign country and did not know the language. The ministry I was a part of in Spain was focused on missions to Africa, but I was not witnessing any fruits from all of our hard work. This became an extremely disheartening time for me. During this period, I had no one to turn to except God. My prayer life began to grow and grow, as did my closeness to Him. He was truly my Heavenly Father. Then, one day, I had the opportunity to visit Africa. While there, I was able to see all the amazing work God had been doing through us. Lives are being changed. I just hadn't been aware of it. The missionaries I got to know during this time were some of the most self-sacrificial individuals I had ever met, kind of like my uncle. They understood that our Lord desires for every Christian, whether you're a missionary or not, to reach out and to show people from every corner of our world the love of Jesus. Upon returning home, I had a greater love for God's people. Because when you visit Rwanda and you get to meet people who have forgiven someone who murdered their family members, that changes you. Or when you witness Christians in the Middle East who at any moment could lose everything for the gospel, yet wake up morning after morning excited to do the Lord's work, that changes you. So share God's love with those who are different from yourself be it from a different culture, age, economic class, or whatever. By doing that, God will not only change others through you, but He will change you as well. I still wonder, as Jonah sat outside Nineveh, did God use those people to change His heart the same way He used Jonah to change theirs?
Well, greetings to all of you. Today we've come to the final chapter in the book of Jonah. And this weekend and the following one, we're going to study Jonah chapter 4 and focus on the main message of this book. At this time, I want to welcome all those watching from our various campuses, the Crowfoot Theatres in Northwest Calgary, our campus in Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to say hello to our online audience as well. Well, if you remember Jonah chapter 3, ended on a high note. The wicked city of Nineveh, the sin city known for its brutality, the city that was an embodiment of evil, responded to the message of Jonah. There's a corporate repentance all the way from the king to the cattle, herds, and flocks. 120,000 people responded to the altar call. They repent of their sins. They beg and ask God for forgiveness, and they urgently called on God. And Jonah chapter 3 finished with these words. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, isn't that a good place to end the book? Jonah preaches and an entire city is saved. He's a hero. He's a celebrity. He's been invited to speak at evangelistic conferences. Time magazine features Jonah on the cover page. For he's achieved something nobody else in the Old Testament had even come close to achieving. What a way to end the book on a high note. But the inspired word of God has Jonah chapter 4. And this chapter does not present Jonah in good light. You see that the hearts of the Ninevites had changed, but Jonah's heart had still not undergone a transformation. In Jonah chapter 4, you can see the intensity of Jonah's hatred for Nineveh and how much he detested them. Jonah is mad that God changed his mind and forgave his worst enemies. He couldn't digest the fact that God would extend grace to the people group that had hurt his nation so deeply. And I wish I could say, I cannot relate to Jonah that I don't understand his feelings. Now I wish I could say our churches today have nothing in common at all with Jonah. That Jonah's hateful attitude is so foreign to us. But that wouldn't be true. I pastored a small church in India for three years. For the first two years, ministry was great. It was smooth sailing. The church was growing. People loved me. They appreciated my sermons. And I thought I had the best church in the entire world. But things changed drastically in the third year, and I had no idea what had happened. Some people in the board of the church were not happy with me. There was mistrust, apprehensions, and strained relationships. And they started blaming me unfairly. They were ruthless in their criticisms, and they questioned my motives and integrity. The board wanted to exercise control over the church and not allow me to lead. And they let me know in no uncertain terms that I'm just an employee of the church, and I have to merely follow their instructions. After yet another difficult board meeting, I came back home to my wife, and I said, how can they do this to me? After all that I've done for the church, is this what I get in return? After going the extra mile and serving so sacrificially, is this what I deserve? 
the pain was so deep, it's like a knife has been plunged into my heart. The days following the board meeting were long and hard as I kept rehearsing in my mind this hurtful exchange. And I was not just upset with the members of the board of the church. I was upset with God for allowing me to go through all this. I was full of remorse, self-pity, and overflowing with the spirit of self-righteousness. The last thing I wanted to do at that moment was to extend grace to people who had hurt me. Have you been hurt deeply by someone? Have you been betrayed? Has someone ever taken advantage of you? Have you ever been at the receiving end of injustice? Has your soul ever been wounded by the actions of others? then you need to pay close attention to Jonah chapter 4 because you have a message here from God. We're going to focus on two passages from the Bible today. So I'm going to ask all of us to stand as we read God's Word from Jonah chapter 4 verses 1 to 5 and Matthew chapter 5 verses 43 to 48. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Lord, we honor your word today. And we confess there are times we feel your word asks us to do seemingly impossible things. God, we recognize how difficult it is to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, and yet it is precisely what you've asked us to do. God, would you give us the power to do the impossible, that your grace will soften our hearts today, that a miracle will take place, a transformation will happen in our hearts, that we will learn even to love our enemies. God, we commit ourselves to you, and uh, this time to the leading of your spirit, 
We pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Imagine you're reading the book of Jonah for the very first time. When God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, and he goes in the opposite direction towards Tarshish, you're stumped with this question. Why is Jonah so bent on running in the wrong direction? Why is he so unwilling to go to Nineveh? The writer of the book of Jonah does not give us an answer in chapter 1. So we, the readers, assume it's because Jonah was afraid to go to this strange city. It was too risky. And that's why he's asking God to find somebody else to do this job. But you come to Jonah chapter 4, and now you finally get to see why Jonah ran away in the first place. Look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you're a merciful and compassionate God slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Jonah hated the Ninevites because they had been a thorn in Israel's flesh. They were their arch enemies. They were a bloodthirsty people with minds bent on committing evil. They specialized in the art of torture. They skinned people alive and threw them in boiling oil. The Assyrians were a looming threat to Israel. And in fact, within 70 years of Jonah's ministry, the Assyrians would go on to viciously attack the northern kingdom of Israel, rape their women, kill their people by the thousands, make a mockery of their religious beliefs, and scatter them. Jonah did not run away because this mission was unsafe or because he was afraid of the Ninevites. The reason he ran away was because he knew God would extend grace to them. Jonah knew God so well that he predicted the outcome. He clearly anticipated the end result, that the city would repent and God would forgive them. And he wanted to do everything in his power, everything, to stop God's grace from reaching Nineveh. That's why he ran in the opposite direction. Wow. And it is fascinating as you read Jonah chapter 4 to see the passion coming forth from Jonah in this chapter to the living God. Now, I don't know of anybody else in the Bible who spoke to God like that. Here in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, it says, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. What seemed wrong to Jonah? When Jonah saw that God had relented from judgment, he was so angry, and it seemed so wrong to him. Did you pay attention to Jonah's sermon to the people of Nineveh back in chapter 3? One of the lousiest sermons you would ever hear. His message basically was, 40 more days and you all will be toast. <laughs> See, the preaching of God's word should inspire hope, not spread doom and gloom. 
But Jonah's sermon was pathetic. 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Hallelujah. <laughs> the word overturned is the same word used for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Jonah had a similar image in his mind of fiery sulfur falling from heaven and destroying the entire wicked city of Nineveh, wiping it out completely, resulting in total annihilation. That's what he wanted. Unfortunately, that wasn't the end outcome. For what reigned that day was not fire and brimstone, but God's grace reigned over the city and blanketed them. The end result is one of the greatest revivals we have ever seen in history. When our text tells us, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong, the word for wrong literally means evil. So this amazing miracle of Assyrian conversion, this breathtaking sight of all of Nineveh repenting in sackcloth and ashes and God extending them grace and forgiveness seemed evil in Jonah's eyes. So he burned with anger. The word used for anger literally means on fire. God's wrath against Nineveh had been appeased by their repentance, but Jonah's anger flared up and he's so incensed at all this. Jonah prayed two times in this book. The last time he prayed, he was in deep distress, on the verge of drowning in deep waters. He prayed to God in desperation, and God rescued his life by sending a great fish. Now he's angry, and Jonah prays. And his prayer this time is basically a complaint. He's complaining that God is too gracious, that he's being too soft on his enemies. Do you see the problem? Jonah wanted God's grace for himself and his people, but he didn't want the same grace to be extended to his enemies. Let me ask you, are there people whom you would rather see punished than forgiven? I'm especially hard on those who drive recklessly and go over the speed limit. I hate it. So whenever a car is zipping way, way over the speed limit, I say to my wife, I wish there's a cop standing right there with a speed gun who will catch this jerk and give him a big ticket. Well, not long ago, I was driving here to church, and I was running late for a meeting. <laughs> yeah, you know where it's headed. You know, I made a left turn from McKnight to Edmonton Trail, and because I was running late, I didn't bother to check my speed. I wanted to get to church as fast as I could. And my heart skipped a beat when I saw an officer with a speed gun on Edmonton Trail of all places. You know, that is a location no one would ever expect a cop to stand. And my first response was, that is so unfair. Could he not have picked another location? <laughs> and my second response, of course, was, oh, Lord, help me. <laughs> and the Lord miraculously caused that speed gun to malfunction and stop working. No, that didn't happen. But I did have a lucky escape 
The officer did not stop me. I didn't get any ticket in the mail. So my guess is I might have been marginally okay. I narrowly escaped. It was just a close call. Now, why is it that when I speed, I want grace, and when someone else speeds, I want justice? Now, why is it that when I speed, it's because I'm running late for a meeting. When somebody else speeds, it's because they are jerks. See, that is the sign that you're suffering from the Jonah syndrome. <laughs> when the mirror comes up, and all of a sudden, we begin to see a side of us that resembles Jonah. Now look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. The words Jonah uses here to describe God is one of the most famous confession in Israel of God's identity. Every God-fearing Jew would have memorized these words. For these words are God's self-revelation about who he is. When God revealed himself to Moses, this is what God said about himself. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God is gracious and merciful. He renders favor to those who are disadvantaged. God is compassionate. The word there speaks of a, a mother's feelings for the child in her womb. God is slow to anger. His wrath is not easily kindled. It takes a lot to make him mad. God is abounding in love. Now, that is a powerful word found throughout the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word hesed. It speaks of God's covenantal love, that he is a God who keeps his promises. He has a unique, loyal love with people whom he is in relationship with. This is a love that is unrelenting. So if you read Psalm 136, all 26 verses end with the phrase, His love endures forever. It's the same word, hesed. Abounding, loving kindness. Now Jonah is mad because this covenantal love, this special love that God has for his people, this unique love for the chosen ones, is now being extended to their enemies. That's behind Jonah's outcry and complaint. He's so upset that Jonah says, God, take my life. I don't want to live anymore. I don't want to be used by you. I don't want to serve you. I just want to die. I can't take it no more. Now, I don't think he's really meaning any of it. This is just an adult throwing a temper tantrum. Now, look at verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, 
sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Jonah is still not entirely convinced that the Ninevites have repented. He's still hoping against hope that God will change his mind and they will get what they deserve, judgment. So what does Jonah do? He builds a nice shelter for himself. And with some nachos and Diet Coke in his hands, he sits down hoping to see some fireworks, the glorious sight of Nineveh's destruction. I tell you, it is amazing, amazing that God had little trouble in changing the heart of a wicked city, but it was much harder to change the heart of a self-righteous believer. Now, isn't it ironic that sometimes it's easier for God to get through to a sinner's heart than a so-called Christian's heart? God's response to Jonah is tender. He asked a gentle, probing question. Verse 4, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Anytime God asks a question in the Bible, it's not because he lacks information. It's because he's trying to teach you a lesson. And here, God is trying to teach a lesson to Jonah. God is helping Jonah to see his own heart. And he's patiently helping his prophet to see Nineveh with God's eyes. That's going to be our focus next week and as we look at God's heart for the city. But today I want to show you how we are no different from Jonah. That there is a Jonah that's lurking inside all of us. We all have our own Nineveh. People whom we don't care if they go to hell. We have those whom we hate for they offended us betrayed us, broke our trust, they hurt us deeply. We may have ethnic groups or cultures whose behavior we cannot stand. The people of other religious faiths that we shun. We have folks who don't live by biblical standards of sexuality whom we detest and despise. There are people all around us whom we have a hard time extending grace. The coworker or boss who gets under your skin. The relative with whom you cannot get along. The neighbor who doesn't take care of his lawn. The friend who keeps calling you at odd hours. The unruly teenagers who play hockey in your cul-de-sac. That person who mocks and makes fun of your faith. The list just goes on and on. And we assume God is mad at these people just as we are mad at them. Someone said, you can tell you made God in your image when he hates all the same people you do. (laughs) We all have a Nineveh, and it is hard to dispense grace to them. I'll tell you my Jonah moment. When I was leading the New Canadian Friendship Center, our ministry to newcomers in the city, we gave away free clothing. We have a cafe that serves free coffee and tea and snacks. And our intention is to bless people with no hidden agendas. Now, there was an individual of another faith who came to our center regularly. 
And every time he came into the building, he acted as if he owned the place. Add to the fact he would make sarcastic comments about the church, about Christians, and about me as a pastor. He would boast about his religion and try to enforce his views on other guests in the center. I realized a deep anger and hatred welled up in my heart against this individual. And whenever I saw him take away a bag of free clothing, part of me wanted to grab it from his hands and say, hey, these clothes come from free donations from members of our church. The day you learn to respect Christians, you can come back and have them, but for now, get out of here and don't ever show your face again. You can tell that I was upset. <laughs> but the Lord spoke to my heart. He got my attention. Didn't you open the doors of the Friendship Center for people like this? Didn't you say you want to bless people with no hidden agendas? See, I was so obsessed with the wrong that I saw in him, and God was pointing out what was wrong with me. And I started praying and asking God to give me love for this person. And I tell you, it's not easy. But not long after that, me and a volunteer from our church had an opportunity to sit with this individual and have a long conversation. And in the process, we were able to give a clear explanation of the gospel. We handed him a gospel of John. He listened to us without interrupting. He took the gospel of John and he promised that he will read it to the end. Now, we would have lost an incredible opportunity to share the good news with this person if I had told him not to come back again to the center. See, when we extend grace, not only do the hearts of the unlovable change, but a change happens in our heart as well. So how do we overcome this Jonah syndrome? I want to turn now to the words of Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. When you read Bible commentaries on Matthew 5, it is sad to see how much we water down the words of Jesus. Commentators spend so much time talking about what it does not mean rather than what it does mean. Now look at these words in Matthew chapter 5. You heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. These are cutting words. And you may wonder, how can Jesus use the word love and enemy in the same sentence? Isn't that a ridiculously impossible command? Who can follow this in real life? The truth is, no one in the natural flesh would want to love their enemies. Instead, we want to hurt them, 
gossip about them, pay them back, retaliate, get even. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth seems to be a more sensible command than turning your other cheek. Allowing those who are good to me and hating my enemies seem to appeal to my sense of justice. But Jesus messes everything up. It's a great book with an amazing title. I wish Jesus hadn't said that. <laughs> Don't you ever feel that when you read the Gospels? I just wish Jesus didn't say those words. But he did, and you and I can't get off the hook. So when we are wrestling with hatred towards someone in our heart, like Jonah did, Jesus looks at us in the eye and he says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now let me clarify something here. Jesus did not say, like your enemies or fall in love with those who treat you bad. That would be unfair and impossible. When Jesus says, love your enemies, do you know what word he uses there in the original language? Professor Darrell Johnson points out, the Greek language had different verbs for the word love. And Jesus deliberately and carefully used the word for love that makes perfect sense in this context. Jesus does not use the Greek word storge. It's the love of a family. He does not say storge your enemy. Eros is the love of beauty. When you're being swept off your feet, it's a romantic love. But Jesus doesn't say, Eros, your enemy. Philia is the word for friendship love. It signifies mutual respect. But Jesus doesn't use this word in reference to our enemies. The word that Jesus uses is the word agape. And agape is a love born out of a decision, an intentional choice. And this love is not ignited by the loveliness of the other, but it is an act of the will, whether or not the other deserves it. So Daryl Johnson points out, you cannot command storge love, eros love, or philia love, because they are not based on the act of the will. But you can command agape love because it is an intentional choice. So according to Jesus, we have to love the same way our Father in heaven loves, indiscriminately. For God allows for the righteous and the unrighteous to experience sunshine and rain and His common grace. And we as Christ followers, are to imitate the heart of the Father. Now, you cannot find a loophole here in the words of Jesus. It means what it exactly says. It's crystal clear. Don't retaliate, but love your enemies and pray for them. Now, when you look at Jonah, he did the exact opposite. Jonah wanted vengeance on the Ninevites, but he did not love the lost city. And not once did Jonah ever pray for the Ninevites. 
As I told you before, the two prayers of Jonah recorded in this book are selfish, self-centered prayers. Praying for your enemies is one of the deepest forms of love. Because when you pray for your enemies, you're lifting them before the throne room of God and asking God to bless and prosper them. And it is the test that you have actually forgiven someone when you can pray from your heart and ask God to bless that individual richly. Now you may ask, how can I treat my enemies like that? to bless them and pray for them and want their well-being after all that they had done against me? How can I let go of their vindictive actions? How can I love someone who has despised and rejected me? And God will look at you and say, didn't I love you even though you rejected me over and over? Didn't I extend my grace to you even though you didn't deserve it? Aren't you glad that I let go of your vindictive actions against me? In fact, that is what Colossians chapter 1 tells us, verses 21 and 22. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Are we not grateful that though we were God's enemies, he was patient with us in the midst of our rebellion, that God did not hold our behavior against us, but he lavished his grace on us, not because of anything that we have done, but it is because of Jesus we were given a reconciliation and a favor that we do not deserve. From Jonah's point of view, Nineveh did not deserve God's grace. And he conveniently forgot he did not deserve God's grace either. And that's something we forget too often. No one ever deserves grace. Grace, by very definition, is undeserving. It's a gift. And when your heart is overwhelmed by the extent of grace God has lavished on you, it is almost impossible not to give that grace away to others. For God has called you and me, not just to be recipients of his amazing grace, but dispensers of his amazing grace. Let me close with this story. Christopher Hitchens was one of the most notorious of the new atheists. His life was preoccupied with disproving the existence of God. His writings, speeches, and debates were full of scathing attacks against Christianity and the Bible. His most famous provocative book was titled, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. At the peak of his career, Hitchens got diagnosed with cancer in 2010. Hitchens wrote about his uh, illness in a magazine column, and he spoke of angry letters that he received from Christians who saw this cancer as a judgment from God. 
There was a Christian scientist named Dr. Francis Collins, who's the director of the National Institute of Health in Maryland. Now, he provides leadership to some of the most cutting-edge research happening in medicine today. And Dr. Collins had been a special target of the new atheists who questioned his appointment as director. They scoffed at his intellectual abilities and how a person of his caliber can fit this high-profile role and constantly belittled him. They mocked Dr. Collins saying he had dementia, that he was a clown, and sneered at his Christian convictions. Philip Yancey, in his book, Vanishing Grace, raises this question. What does love look like in the face of hostile criticism? He goes on to cite this story as an example. When Hitchens got diagnosed with cancer, Dr. Collins reached out to him. They had debated with each other previously, and they didn't see eye to eye on matters of beliefs. They were seen as adversaries. But Dr. Collins spent hours with Hitchens and his wife over the next few months. He explored various treatment options with them and made available the best and novel treatment plan possible. Rather than rejoicing in his enemy's affliction, Dr. Collins sought to bless them and prayed for them. An unlikely bond of friendship developed between the two that lasted until the day Hitchens died in 2011, a year and a half after his diagnosis. And even though no one believes Hitchens had a conversion experience, in one of his last columns in Vanity Fair, Hitchens had something good to say about a Christian whom he had despised earlier. He called Dr. Collins one of the greatest living Americans and the most selfless Christian physician. Interestingly, he even commended Dr. Collins' book, The Language of God, as a work that attempts to make science compatible with faith. Wow. Grace and love can soften a person's heart like nothing else in this world. So let me ask you, who are the Ninevites in your life? Who are the people you have a hard time extending grace? Who do you secretly wish that God would judge? It could be a person. It could be a people group. Now, I want to challenge you today, based on what you've heard, to pray for them this week. And if you're able go on and do something concrete that will bless them. And I don't know if your enemy's heart is going to change or not, but I can assure you something deep will change in your heart. As we come to an end, I'm going to ask all of us to stand. I want you to hear me clearly. Loving your enemies is not a natural act. It's not something you can do in your own strength. You can't just make up your mind today saying, I'm going to love my enemies and walk out of here. 
because you're going to fail miserably. When someone learns to love their enemies, it shows a miracle had taken place. A miracle of heart transformation. And only God is capable of bringing about that change in our hearts. So all we can do is to bring those who have hurt us, those who have offended us, bring them before the throne of grace. And you can ask Jesus to stretch forth his nail-pierced hands and remove that hatred from your heart and fill you with his divine agape love. I'm going to ask you to maintain a moment of silence right now and close your eyes. And just open your hands with your palms open and ask God to bring to your mind is there anyone you're harboring hatred against? Any group that you just can't stand? And would you ask God right now for a miracle? That God would reach out to you and bring a transformation in your heart that will change the way how you look at your enemies. I'm going to maintain a moment of silence and allow God's Spirit to do a deep work in us. And then I'll close us in prayer. Father, we know that your word sometimes commands us to do seemingly impossible things. But we believe that what you have commanded us to do, you will also give us the power to fulfill. So God, we come before you needy and broken. And we express our utter helplessness to fulfill this command of loving our enemies. The hurts are so deep. The wounds are fresh. But thank you, Lord, for the power of your grace that can melt even our hearts and bring about a, a supernatural work of transformation. God, I pray that your grace will reign in this place, that you will fill every heart with your divine agape love that you will give us the power to walk in obedience to your commands that you will give us a heart that reflects your heart we pray for grace upon grace that we be not just recipients of your amazing grace but dispensers of this great and amazing grace and even as we leave this place May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet 
unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit. May rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter 